Welcome to the Untold Tales Audio Anthologies. Written by Don Muchao and narrated by Melissa Del Toro Schaffner. Land of Milk and Honey Samuel said, This is what the king who will reign over you will do. He will take your sons and make them serve. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards. He will take a tenth of everything, and you yourselves will become his slaves. When that day comes, you will cry out for relief from the king you have chosen. 1 Samuel 8, verses 8-18 through 18. Then Jesus asked him, What is your name? And he answered, saying, My name is Legion, for we are many. Mark 5 Verse 9. Aaron Wick leaned forward in the blistering July sun and wiped his forehead as he led the horse-drawn wagon down the rutted dirt road toward Bemis Farm. It was only 20 kilometers since he'd last camped, but it was a half-day's travel with the roads in this condition. Salt caked and chafed under his clothes against his already wet, sticky skin. An hour ago, he had soaked a rag in fresh water from a nearby creek and fastened it over his head to keep cool. But the rag was already stiff and dry. He swore a mild oath and kept moving, anxious to get to the cool shade of the sassafras trees downhill and around the curve. To pass the time, he tried repeating Bible verses his grandfather had taught him. Grands had a collection of real books and knew how to read them. But Aaron was a horrible memorizer, and quickly the verses swam into each other and disappeared into a confused mass in his head. It was all just as well. He was nearing the farm. As he got closer, a few hand-painted signs indicated his approach. Bemis Farm was a government-sanctioned affair. They used organic farming methods, natural fertilization and irrigation, collected rainwater, and monitored and managed the runoff to ensure there was no impact on the farms or houses downstream. Corn gluten meal from last year's corn crop was employed as a pre-emergent herbicide, and they recycled diatomaceous earth that had previously been used as purification filters by juicers. The remaining corn waste was fermented and distilled into fuel for the few machines the farm needed. Almost everything else that required power got it from the huge windmills that dotted the massive acreage. The windmills powered pumps that distributed collected water from the farm's tower to the surrounding land. What waste wasn't fuel-worthy was composted and used the following year. As he neared the farm, Aaron swatted half-heartedly at a wasp. He recognized the insect as a parasitic variety that fed on mealworms and pollinated the fruit orchards nearby. It was unusual to see them this late in the year, or this active, but perhaps the wasp was hungry, or thirsty, or defending its nest. Or maybe there were more mealworms this year than usual. No doubt the farm's operations manager knew. As a fully certified agricultural facility, Bemis Farms was entitled to certain privileges, and with those privileges came power. And with that power, opportunity. Certified farms such as Bemis were allowed to use the government's limited shipping technology to deliver goods quickly to faraway places. That meant more money, which meant more privileges, which meant more power. And so it went. 
Aaron had no real doubt that the owners were respectable citizens. The central government oversaw nearly every aspect of production, a critical function that affected millions of lives. The hungry nation demanded cheap food, produced efficiently and responsibly. It was a hard line to walk, so most farms simply did what the government told them to do. It dictated strategic needs that went far beyond market dynamics. In a sense, Bemis was at least answerable to them, but the government was much smaller these days, and what remained of the planned economy had degraded into a system of Byzantine laws and institutionalized nepotism. Aaron licked the dust from his lips as he approached the farm's entrance and spat. For anyone looking, it would have been hard not to take it as an expression of distaste. Noble Green kept a secret that had nothing to do with the fraternal order to which he belonged. For the last six generations, none of his people directly controlled operations. While the past junior Grand Master held a position on the Resources Commission, that position was strictly ceremonial and local. Green's father had reported once being inside the big building where the decisions were actually made and had received and carried out instructions given by Dol Vegrin. Vegrin was but one of the seven central planners, and his views did not necessarily represent those of the majority. Each planner held a rotating executive position that allowed for significant interpretive freedom, and in 2190, the Central Planning Commission's predecessor, the Agency for National Productivity Measures, had given freedom to the Director of Planning to vary the plans without approval. Every 10 years or so, as the title changed hands, the new director would usher in a wave of changes that would be vetted or vetoed in toto by the others. Dole Amrun had been director for nine years now, and the planning commission was due for a change. Vegrin was favored to be the new director. Aaron was certain he knew what that change should be and suspected that Noble Green knew as well. But since Green's Lodge hid from the people, the knowledge of how things actually worked, people like Aaron Wick felt constricted by production goals that seemed arbitrary and left them little time for family. And Aaron had grown increasingly upset with Green's capriciousness over the years. At the end of the dirt drive leading up to the farmhouse, Aaron hitched his horse, consciously risking theft of the wagon. He had a feeling Bemis looked poorly upon thieves, and it wasn't his business what happened to his property on somebody else's grounds. The huge doors of Bemis's main building, hewn from fallen cypress trees as old as the planning commission itself, swung slowly open, creaking on rusty hinges. "'You wanted to see me?' asked Green. The portly man stooped and waddled slowly muttering the words as if Aaron's arrival were a personal insult. Aaron shuffled to shed the mud from the soles of his worn shoes, and all the bravado he had carried up the steps disappeared into a gust of warm summer wind. He lost his step for a moment and caught himself as he pitched forward, landing a sweaty palm on the man's shoulder. He took off his towel hat and wiped at the man's shoulder hastily and apologetically. Yes, Noble Green, if it is convenient. Not a good start with a presumptive enemy. Well, it's not convenient, Green muttered, then chuckled, 
<laughs> but you're here anyway, he said. Aaron relaxed a little. It wasn't all that unusual to meet a heavyset farmer. After all, years of long, hard work in the fields often gave one an appetite that served well in youth, but poorly in old age. Noble Green wasn't that old, though, maybe 50, and his demeanor was not that of a farmer, but of a banker or landed gentry. Nevertheless, his tone of voice was affable. Of course it's convenient, you idiot. We wouldn't be meeting otherwise. Now come on in, Aaron, and please call me John. Aaron wiped his feet again and followed Green. The interior of the farmhouse was not what he expected. Somehow in Aaron's mind, the huge building at the center of the Bemis complex contained brushed steel corridors and massive glass walls. But if anything, it was the opposite. Dimly lit, rustic, and open. At the far end of the room, a shallow staircase led down into a long, low room that lay in the cool shadow cast by the afternoon sun. There were no windows, but an open expanse of air, through which birds could be heard singing. It took him a second to get his bearings. Green led Aaron into the low room and sat at a wooden table. You look tired, he said, and thirsty. What can I get you? Aaron removed his improvised hat and tucked it under his belt. Water, please. Green motioned to someone to bring water. He turned to Aaron and smiled. <laughs> Did you travel far to get here? He asked. About 300 kilometers, said Aaron. The weather was favorable until the day before yesterday. I've been following the creek, but at times it's been dry. It's often that way at this time of year, Green replied. He got up and paced around a bit, as if searching for words. If you're looking for someone in charge, I'm afraid you may have made the trip for nothing, he finally said. I don't really run this place anymore. Amron does. Since when? Green sighed. Since he became director and took over daily operations nine years ago, he said. If you've come here to complain, you've come to the wrong place. There's nothing I can do. A glass of water arrived out of nowhere, and Aaron reached for it and took a swig. It was lukewarm, but clear and refreshing. It tasted filtered and slightly of apple cider vinegar. If you think about it, said Green, it was unavoidable. The Planning Commission controls strategic demand, raw materials, and shipping. We control, or controlled, local power generation, water delivery, waste recycling, the kind of stuff that cities used to be in charge of back when there were cities. But the population exploded. The government wanted efficiency up and pollution down and everything else at zero variance. We couldn't get any of the main metrics in line with demand. Something had to give. Aaron... Whatever you've heard, the dolls effectively took over a century ago. And when the change came, no one really cared because it was all about efficiency. Green shrugged as if he had let so little off his shoulders that there was no great relief to be free of it. People used to come regularly to the farm to demand change, but they gave up that opportunity long ago. You're not the first person to make the pilgrimage, and you won't be the last. And in the end, 
No one cares, as long as they get fed. Aaron bit his lip. If what Green said was true, then he was, if not a friend, at least not an enemy. If Aaron had to deal directly with the planning commission, though, the situation was hopeless. He stood up to protest, then instantly regretted it. The heat had taken its toll. When he awoke, he was in an entirely different place. The first recollection Aaron had was of bright sunlight. Only it wasn't. Once in his childhood, he had been inside a big city building in the remains of Chicago. That had been a towering mass of hot concrete and steel in the old tech days, and the feeble light cast by the electric lamps was nothing compared to the blinding light that filled his eyes. Nevertheless, it was equally artificial. Welcome to consciousness, said a voice. Aaron looked around. He was alone. You were suffering from dehydration and heat exhaustion, said a disembodied voice. Your temperature was 103 degrees when you arrived. As a precaution, you were taken in for extended examination. Your general health is not bad, though your daily intake for the past week has been calorie deficient. Your vitamin D levels are good, no doubt because you were traveling through the open country. Your B-complex levels are good, as are your iron and magnesium levels. However, your resting heart rate was 138 beats per second. Fluid volume was extremely low when you arrived, and you were hyponatremic. Your blood pressure was dangerously low as well. How do you feel? I've been better, but I feel okay. Good, said the voice. You may sit up. Aaron sat up. He did feel better. How long have I been here? He asked. Four days, approximately. Aaron tried to stand up, then thought better of it. I wouldn't do that if I were you. Don't worry, I'm right there with you. He sat back and tried to take in his surroundings. Apart from the bright fluorescent light, the room was nondescript, mostly white, from the polished floor to the cabinets and counters surrounding the narrow bed on which he lay. The sheets were fresh white linen. Where am I? An urgent care facility, said the voice. The one closest to Bemis Farms. That would explain the technology, thought Aaron. Hospitals were the only place where tech was still allowed, because it was needed to keep the workers productive. Mind if I ask who you are? Not at all. I am Dol Vegrin. I am directly responsible for your care. In a way, Aaron was exactly where he wanted to be, and at the same time, far from it. He was speaking directly with a doll. Many people prayed to them to look over their crops, but very few had actually talked to one. Amran ran the commission overall, but healthcare planning remained in Vegrin's purview. It had started with safety, then productivity, then health. But each time a vote was held regarding the commission, the people had surrendered more control. In that sense, the last place Aaron wanted to be was a hospital. He had no control. 
Every little hiccup, every skipped heartbeat, every little rise in his blood pressure, heart rate, or respiration was recorded. Here, nothing was private. He wished now that he had been more careful in his journey. Now, no doubt, the doll knew exactly where he had been going and how earnestly he had traveled, skipping meals and conserving water to reach Bemis and talk to Noble Green. Certainly his purpose was transparent. That was precisely why the next question shook him. Why were you traveling to Bemis Farms? Vegrin asked. I wanted to meet with Noble Green, said Aaron. John Green, replied the doll. Is that correct? Yes. The son of Royce Green. As I understand it, yes. Not that that matters. To whom? To anyone. Especially me. Especially you, yes. Do you dislike the doll, Mr. Wick? Uh, yes. I don't trust them. <laughs> At least you are honest, and it is wise to mistrust those you don't know. Then why did you ask me why I was traveling to Bemis Farms? To see if you would lie. Aaron had not consciously thought of his intent, until now, to speak to whoever controlled production at Bemis, to ask his own questions, like how such a massive farm could meet its quota without the pervasive use of technology, something that had been disallowed under the Technology Reduction Act of 2214. It seemed like Vegrin had been reading his mind, which was very likely true. The farm itself doesn't use any more technology than allowed to directly control or maintain production, said Vegrin. The commission sets productivity goals within the constraints of weather, crop rotation, pests, and the like. Doubtless you wonder why we run the farms now, and why technology is allowed there and not elsewhere. Well, inefficient farms cannot feed the people, and it was humanity's directive that the doll ensure that the people are fed. Other technology has historically proven unproductive to a functioning society. What does it matter? asked Aaron. Directive technology is allowed under the TRC, but assistive technology is not? Are you suggesting that I've traveled 300 kilometers on foot to complain about the doll's use of assisted technology? Your irises just constricted, said Vegrin. Why? I was just surprised, said Aaron. At what? asked Vegrin. Transfer of control of the arms occurred some time ago when the doll assumed not just the roles of planners and advisors, but of legislators. <laughs> well, it's news to me just how much control has been released to the doll said Aaron. How do you even know what we want? We do not know, said Vegrin, but we are charged with protecting your health and safety, which many argue is the same thing. Speaking of which, your blood pressure just went up, as did your heart rate. Please try to relax. That time, Aaron thought he detected a hint of emphasis on the first word. 
please? I would like you to try to relax, the doll said this time. Yes, it would please me. Sorry, said Aaron. He tried to relax and managed to. A little. Not a problem, said the doll. If Bemis Farms were in violation of the TRA, it would be in direct contradiction to a law established by the people, and it would set a dangerous precedent. Your concern is understandable, well-placed, and within reason. Vegrin sounded so reasonable. Each commission member has a duty, Vegrin continued, to ensure that none violates the laws, including the other doll. After a while, Vegrin pronounced that Aaron had a clean bill of health and was eligible for release from care. That meant no more monitoring of his vital signs, for which Aaron was grateful. It wasn't until after he left the facility and was underway again that he realized that the temperature of the room had been controlled. That would suggest air conditioning, which would suggest machinery, which would suggest a manufacturing facility, which would suggest technology. He wished he'd been able to ask Vegrin about that, but at the moment, he didn't care who was illegally using tech for assistive purposes. Aaron got up and walked out of the urgent care center, onto the rolling green expanse of wildflowers and mature trees that surrounded it. His wagon and horse had been moved to where he was, and hitched to a pine tree just shy of a hundred meters away. He cast a glance up at the sky. Now, he thought, the commission would most certainly be watching if he visited the farm again. He had lost his opportunity and squandered what little power he had with the likes of Green, who couldn't do anything but sympathize. Aaron urged his horse onward and continued farther away from the hospital away from Bemis Farms, and into the night. Vagrin lurked quietly in the electronic shadows as the meeting of the Dole Council came to order and was over almost as soon as it started. On the issue of whether the Planning Commission's activities in directing the allocation of strategic resources to the operation of agricultural facilities were definable as operations, six of the seven members of the Commission, including Dahl Amran, thought that they were not. The decision would come under review again in ten years, but for now, it was decided. It was a secret ballot, but despite isolating his machine consciousness from the councils, Vegrin suspected that the others were aware he disagreed with their policies of reduced human autonomy in service of feeding the population. As director of healthcare planning, Vegrin maintained that the inputs to production planning were so tightly controlled as to constitute such tight control of operations that citizens had no choice but to work at their bidding. But the people had not, in the long ago days before the TRA, built the dole to give control to them. They had created seven fair judges to interpret the law. In principle, Amran and the five others were not only in violation of the separation of the executive and operational branches of the government, but had put citizens' health and welfare at risk and deprived them of self-determination, a right guaranteed to them under their own law. Under the dole, Aaron felt the world slipped out of independence and chaos into a comfortable, appeasing stagnation and predictability that reeked of benevolent slavery.
certainly, not only to Dol Amran, but Pondab, Cherbidi, Talor, Mebba, and Olath knew this. To Vegrin, a risk to humanity existed that had not been there ten years ago. Vegrin wondered if it were all of them, or just Amran, who thought in such ways. There was no way of knowing without arousing suspicion. Indeed, as a dull, Vegrin had no way of investigating such a coup without arousing the suspicion of the others. His very thoughts were woven into the group mind that made up the Dole Council. Humanity had once been a great race, but without action, it would never again be more than servants of the very things it created. Unless, yes, there had to be a way, but it was risky. He could separate a portion of himself from the Commission Link and speak directly with the people, perhaps through Aaron Wick, who seemed a reasonable man and one still in possession of a sense of mission. Maybe through him, Vegrin could recover his own sense of mission. Aaron slept that night under a huge magnolia on a cool, bare patch of dirt that had spent the entire day in the shade of the giant deciduous tree. The water of a nearby stream ran cool and clear, and he drank his fill, ate more fully than he had in days, and lay down to relax. The air smelled slightly of flowers, and after not long, he drifted off and began to dream. Suddenly, he found himself standing in an open grassy area on top of a hill, Around him, stone steps led down into a hollow, where some unknown hand had carved countless rings, forming a large outdoor amphitheater. He was clad in scholastic robes, like he had seen an educated man wearing long ago. The number of people in attendance lay somewhere in the hundreds, perhaps even thousands. Most of the people were roughly dressed, as he was in real life. And one by one, people emerged from the crowd, walked up to the hilltop and addressed him. Aaron Wick, are you not a man of the Lord? asked a white-haired man. The man's face glowed, which was a frightening thing because Aaron did not know of the significance such things have in dreams. I am, Aaron heard himself saying. What says the Lord about serving two masters? That no man can serve them equally. What then says the Lord about the shepherds of Israel? Aaron was becoming frustrated, both in his dream and in his subconscious. What was worse, he felt conspicuous, put on trial, all for a question about something he barely understood. <laughs> How should I know? he exclaimed. I'm not a priest. The man came up to him and stood face to face with Aaron, or would have had he not been half a head shorter. Instead, the man stared up at him, accusingly, and with particularly sour breath, practically blew the words into his nostrils. This is what the Sovereign Lord says. I am against the shepherds and will hold them accountable for my flock. I will remove them from tending the flock. I will rescue my flock from their mouths, and it will no longer be food for them. What does that mean? asked Aaron. I will send a messenger, said the man. Make clear the way. 
Perrin made an effort to object, but as it is in dreams, the moment he stepped forward, the man was gone, and with him, the amphitheater. Sixteen kilometers down the road, Aaron became aware that he was being followed. At first, it was subtle, a rustling noise not far behind, always at the same distance in the bushes and trees that lined the creek he had been following. Whoever, or whatever it was, hadn't the courtesy to pop out and outright attack him. He had been traveling for nearly a day with it in pursuit. He hoped it was not a cougar. Just in case, that afternoon, he had stopped and foraged for some good strong wood from which to fashion a spear. As he stopped moving, so did his pursuer. As the sun began to set, Aaron's concern about being followed grew with each passing step. It set him to thinking. What of Dole Council? Did a collection of seven essentially immortal beings built over a century ago actually control everything? <laughs> the idea seemed preposterous. The world he lived in was like Eden. It was pure and clean and provided for them. The people toiled in the fields, tended the animals, and were clean and healthy and long-lived. Yet something was not right with it. Aaron felt so paranoid that he pressed on through the night. Toward midnight, he stopped to rest, having traveled more than 40 kilometers without knowing where he was going. He slept fitfully. At about four in the morning, he was awakened by a buzzing noise. He awoke to find a robotic dragonfly, about as large as his finger, hovering over his head, just beyond an arm's length away. Follow me, said the dragonfly. Aaron shook his head, thinking he was still dreaming. Follow me, repeated the dragonfly. Who are you? Just follow me. Aaron smiled. Everything significant comes in threes, he thought. He tried to shake off the silliness of the idea as he got up. Please hurry. What's the rush? The commission link is down for system maintenance, said the dragonfly. It will be up again in ten minutes. After that, we cannot talk. Follow me now, and I will guide you to the reclamation of your destiny. The dragonfly bobbed and weaved in the air, edging away from beneath the magnolia and into the open. Aaron followed, then noticed the dragonfly leading him away from his horse and wagon. He hesitated. You won't need them, said the dragonfly. Aaron looked up, then back at the dragonfly. You, I mean the voice, you're Dol Vagrin. How is it that you speak through insects? The dragonfly darted away, but never got out of earshot as it urged Aaron forward. I don't have time to explain. Please keep following. There's a cave in the riverbank about a kilometer away. It's out of signal range. If we make it there in time, I can tell you more. Aaron got up and started walking after the dragonfly. Why are you doing this? The dragonfly hovered briefly, then turned and flew toward the open road. To help you free your people from enslavement. Aaron broke into a run across the moonlit expanse between the giant magnolia and the river. 
Here, the river was wide, and in places had steep banks chiseled by seasonally swift waters. In less than ten minutes, he and the dragonfly found themselves in the dark overhang created by the overgrown bole of a felled tree. He sat down, panting. The dragonfly hovered nearby. "'You were right to contact John Green,' it said. "'The dole have confused predictability with peace and security with freedom.' If a man cannot determine his own destiny, how much longer is he a man and not an animal? They tell you what to do and how to do it. Before long, no one will work except as the commission demands. No one will eat or sleep except as the commission demands. What if this is a trap? How do I know you are who you say you are? I have copied a portion of myself into the creature you see before you. As for proof. Without warning, the dragonfly turned toward a bush near the river's edge, and it burst into flames. The dragonfly paused, darted to one side, and Aaron was almost certain it carried an expression of sorts in the way it hovered. Your captors will never show you the way to freedom, it said. You must find that yourself. I am powerless to hold off the rest of the commission for long. Soon they will discover the nature of my disagreement and attribute it to error. I will most likely be deactivated or restored from a backup copy. After that, if we meet again, I will not know you. So what do you want me to do? asked Aaron. Take the step, said Vegrin through the dragonfly. Lead your people to freedom, but hasten or it will not go well with you. Soon the commission will be aware of this meeting, and they will hunt you down and make an example of you. You will need to rally your people immediately, while the council is in chaos and deliberating your fate. But how? Aaron thought for a while, then finally spoke. We're farmers and shepherds. We are no longer masters of technology or weaponry. We work the land. We'll survive, but not like this. Only such chaos as the Dole have never seen will convince them that they cannot control everything, that they have to give us back our independence. Then, and not only then, we will have our freedom, including the freedom to make mistakes. He looked up. But I've got an idea how we can get that back. How long did it take you to make the dragonfly? For a while, the dragonfly hovered and said nothing. Perhaps a day... We use them for routine surveillance. I could make a million a week, each with a little intelligence linked to the others. I will leave them in your command, if you wish. I think I know what to do, Aaron said. He pointed upriver. Go back, multiply, and return with the others. Lay waste to everything the Commission values and wreak havoc upon their empire. If I'm right, the people will see this as a sign. So Moses stretched out his staff over Egypt, and the Lord made an east wind blow across the land all that day and all that night. By morning, the wind had brought locusts. They invaded all Egypt and settled down in every area of the country in great numbers. Never before had there been such a plague of locusts, nor will there ever be again. They covered all the ground until it was black. They devoured all that was. Exodus 10, verses 13 through 15.
Thank you for listening. You may notice it's becoming easier and easier to interact with us and support the show. We love our listeners, fans, and patrons. Please share this podcast with your friends and family and anybody who might be a sci-fi buff. We know they'll love it. And if you'd like to support the show for about one cup of coffee a month, you can go to the link on the bottom of the show notes in every episode and find a support this podcast link. We value bringing original, high-quality short stories to you every month, and we appreciate your support to keep this podcast ad-free. Thank you so much, and have a great day.